0: Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to be reading the first 20 verses. Then, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. If everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view, and of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the power of sin, as the scriptures say. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness." They rush to commit murder, destruction, and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this holy scriptures that you've given us through your followers, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the uh, the empowerment that it gives us. We thank you for the convicting that it does to us, Lord, that we may be able to change our hearts for good, Lord, that we may be able to follow you in the footsteps that you have placed before us. Lord, I ask that you would help us to follow on the path that you would have for us. Lord, I ask that you would uh, guard this sanctuary this morning and guard this whole church. Lord, put your angels around us as we hear your truth, Lord, that we may not be distracted from it. Lord, I pray that you would bless Pastor Doug this morning, give him strength of voice. Lord, help his words to be your words and help the Holy Spirit to help uh, apply them to our lives. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name amen
1: a man rushed into his house in a panic stricken state his wife looked at him and said what's wrong he said we're in deep trouble she said to him what is it it's the car what's wrong with a car water There's water in the carburetor, it won't work. What? There's water in the carburetor and the car won't work. His wife cocked her head to the side and narrowed her eyes a bit and said, Now, you don't have a mechanical bone in your body. You know nothing about automobiles. How in the world do you know the problem when the car is water in a carburetor? The husband hung his head and said, the car's in the swimming pool. There has to be water in a carburetor. The man's problem was a lot bigger than what he said. A lot of us are more messed up than we look. We may simply say that there's water in a carburetor when our whole life is in the pool. But we can dress it up, fix it up, tweak it up, talk it up, lay it out, trying to make it look like there's only a little water in the carburetor. we now find ourselves in question number three of four questions that dominate Romans chapter three. Previously, Paul answered two other questions by directing those questions toward the one in whom we should always look for answers, especially when it comes to the issues of life and certainly the issue of sin. Remember how Paul answered the first question of what advantage then do the Jews have? We noted that from the scriptures at the very word of God we now hold on our laps came from the Jews. The Jewish nation was given the very oracles of God which began at the pinnacle of Mount Sinai not too long after the Introduction of the book of Exodus. The next question Paul dealt with deals with a question that focuses on the wrath of God's judgment. The fly and the ointment of this question centers on the thought that if a person's unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, then why in the world is God righteous in dealing out wrath against sinful man? In other words, why don't we just continue our unrighteousness so that the world will clearly see how righteous God is? We need to stop here and answer the question the same way Paul did. Are you kidding me? Well, in the context of the text, it's more like certainly not. Now in verse 9, the third question is asked. What then? Are we any better off? Now here we need to think about the basis of this interesting question. In essence, if a member of the Jewish nation is asking this question, and in all account, it may very well be. This question has to do with God's favor. Especially as it relates to God's choosing of the Jews for His glory, you see, the Jews thought that they were above the Gentiles when it came to judgment of sin. They thought they only had to—they only had uh, had water in the wrong place. When in reality, they were just as sinful and unrighteous as those they were accusing. Their content was that God will judge the Jews differently than the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul's stark and offensive answer back to this counterpart is precise and to the point when he says, Not at all. This quick response is then followed up with the all encompassing declaration that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, they're guilty. And worthy of God's judgment. When you become to verse 10 of our text and you go down to verse 18, you find yourself in the presence of God as a judge, as a physician, and as a historian. In verses 10 through 12, God is declaring judgment. In verses 13 to 15, he's examining us as a physician. And in verse 16 through 18, he reminds us of history. In fact, there are 14 total declarations concerning mankind. And it is our job, our task this morning to pause at each declaration to highlight the meaning of what the prophets wrote and what Paul writes to the church at Rome. So first, we find ourselves in the presence of God as judge over all mankind. Notice the first one in verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's a quote from two places in the Old Testament, from Psalm 14 verse one and and then 53 verse one. In both of those passages, they begin by saying the exact same thing that Paul has written here when he said, no human being has in himself ever been righteous. Forget all the falsehoods of philosophy Science and human religions that have ingrained in the minds of humans to think that they are just as righteous as God. Paul says, none of us, no one is righteous before God. I think one of the, the greatest decapitating thoughts in our society today is that People don't view themselves as sinners. And I think that happens because they sort of compare themselves to people who are worse than they. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't kicked the dog. I haven't yelled at my wife. So I must be pretty good. But both the psalmist and the apostle Paul says, no, not one. No one is righteous. No one can stand before God and say, I deserve. When God's judgment would be, yes, you do deserve something. But it's not what you think you'd like to have. So as God is the judge, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The second one is there is no one who understands. Especially, the text would tell us, context would tell us that, especially when it comes to the things of heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're told that the preaching of the cross to them who are perishing is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. They don't understand. The cross has become a stumbling block to the Jewish nation, and at the same time, a mockery of Gentiles. We don't understand We are devoid, if you will, of spiritual understanding. And that's what Paul is saying here, evident by the questions that are being asked him. They don't understand. And in fact, as we further on into chapter 3, and then when we get into chapter 4, and eventually chapter 5, and chapter 6, Paul deals with... The direct question about, then what hope do we have? If all are under sin, then what hope do we have? Well, I can't wait to get to those passages, and I'm sure you can't wait either, because maybe so far, only in the third chapter these many weeks, you may be coming bored of Romans. But hang in there. Hang in there. Humanity by nature understands nothing of God. Men think, they do, and write vast volumes on the subject. But the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, knew not God. They don't know him. The third one. There's no one who seeks God. I know I'm old-fashioned. I I know that. I'm accused of that from my children. I got that. I am old-fashioned. But I cannot yet figure out churches that have, quote, seeker-sensitive services. When you come to this, there's no one who seeks after God. That doesn't mean that mankind doesn't have a choice to make. But God initiates his presence to them. Peter tells us that the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The problem is, will we trust it? Sinful people aren't out there seeking after God. I've become enamored, I think, as I watch the news. I'm saddened to hear that our present vice president sitting around the table of abortion activists saying we will do everything we can in our power to protect your rights. And I say, What about the babies? What rights do they have? We have a president who is more concerned for the killing of babies. I'm gonna say this and we'll probably be kicked off of YouTube, that's okay. He's more concerned about killing babies than he was about the servicemen who died in Afghanistan. The great travesty. Why? Because no one seeks after God. I'm glad that there's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone can boast. It's God's grace. Whereby he meets us. In order that we may know him. That's our choice. The fourth. Is all have turned away. Psalm 14.3 and. Psalm 53, verse 3. All mankind has abandoned the way of God. Isaiah the prophet wrote it well when he condemned the nation of Israel as he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And in the closing of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi wrote, were turned aside, out of the way. We've run away from God, which brings me to this point. What did we really expect would happen? Turning our back on God, what did we really expect was going to happen? It's evident today. The fifth one, all alike have become worthless. The human race is useless and worse than useless to God. The meaning here is in reference to what the Greeks thought of concerning rotten fruit or whatever was utterly irrevocable bad and therefore useless. I've smelt decaying potatoes in a big bag of other ones. And you can't hide that smell. It's putrid. In fact, that's the context here. All have become putrid. The very presence of God. Moving along quickly, number six, there is no one who does what is good, not even one. The word good there is not in reference to the fact that we can help elderly individuals across the street. We can do good by supporting the uh, Lifeline Pregnancy Services That's not what this is referring to. It's referring to there's nothing good man can do to earn the favor of God for salvation. Nothing. Jews and Gentiles alike were corruption rather than holiness, sinfulness rather than goodness, cruelty rather than kindness, Such is the way of mankind is displayed in walking away and being estranged from God. Now we come to God as the doctor, and the diagnosis is not good. It says, number seven, says their throat is an open grave. The saying, the eye is the window of the soul, so also is the throat and the tongue, denote the state of health. And you go to a doctor, and he, he gets that piece of stick, and he jams it down your throat. He so open up and say, ah. I've always wondered why they do that. But apparently to them, that is a window of health. With well, the things inside the mouth, my wife was having a terrible pain in one of her teeth. She went to the doctor, and the doctor said, open up and say, ah, and she did, and he said, oh, here it is, you've got an infection. So they were able to prescribe for her an antibiotic to help alleviate the infection and also take the pain away. When the Apostle Paul writes here, he says, Their throat is an open grave. There can't be anything more horrible than what we have here. Death, decay, mortal stench, and, not, and that not hidden, but open. One individual wrote that, and when he said the mouth... Of mankind, it says, emitting the noisome exaltations of a putrid heart. We must remember, we are here seeing man through God's all holy eyes. They deceive with their tongues. Simply said, number eight, this is the habitual practice of the human race. you do realize that a little white lie is as treacherous as a full-blown deceit because they're both untrue. And we use our words to deceive, our tongues to deceive people. We sort of pump ourselves up in many ways to alleviate a seeing of who we really are. The next one is interesting, of course it says a viper's venom is under their lips. I read that and I coiled back because I hate snakes. I can't stand snakes. Going to zoos with my children when they were young in school, When they wanted to go in where the reptiles are, I knew what was in there. And I told them, you go in, I'll wait out here. I hate snakes. But the picture is this. The fangs of a deadly serpent lie ordinarily fold back in its upper jaw. And when it throws up its head to strike, those hollow fangs drop down. And when the serpent bites, The fangs press against a sack of deadly poison hidden under its lips, thus injecting the venom into the wound. I searched that. I wanted to know what, what it meant by this phrase. Unfortunately, you and I were born with moral poison sacks under our lips. We lash out quickly at people. We condemn them in order to wound them. People do claim the right, and how people claim the right, to strike others with their venom word. Number 10, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 7. Cursing and bitterness are ever ready to be spit upon someone who we don't agree with. Some of the greatest display of this thought even happens while we're sitting in the pew. how mankind loves to curse others. I wrote a note to myself here. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Number 11. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Isaiah 59, seven. One man wrote, I saw a child under two years raise his puny fist against another crying, I'll kill you. Murder is so common now that new ways of performing this act are available. May we even say it's a constitutional right I speak of the sin of abortion. When the restraining grace of God is withdrawn, we read in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 4 that it will be given to the red horse rider to take peace from the earth, and that they should slay one another. For more detail, read your daily papers. Third, now we enter the realm of God as he speaks as the all-seeing historian of all fallen men. Number 12, ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, Isaiah fifty nine and verse seven. As from the Lord ourself, His words were as in the days of Noah. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days, we read in Genesis six eleven. It says that in the days of Noah, the earth was full of violence. Those who proudly proclaim that the human race is improving, progressing, are blind to history, blind to present daily facts, and blind to the rising tide of human violence. Number 13, the path of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59, 8. It's a terrible thing, God reveals, that not one of the human race knows or is by nature pursuing the path of peace. They have not known the path of peace, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who walks on them will know peace. Isaiah 59 and verse 8. One individual wrote this statement, They know not the ways in which godly men walk at peace with God and their neighbors. And so they go on in their paths, which lead to misery and ruin, both to themselves and each other. Last but not least, and I would dare say the one that is the cause of the previous 13, when it says... There's no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36 verse 1. The last statement is the most awful of all and explains all the others. To fear God consists in having a due sense of the majesty and holiness and justice and goodness of God, which will make us thoroughly fearful to offend him. For each of these attributes, God is proper to raise a suitable fear in every Christian mind. And so we come to wondering, what does that have to do with me, Pastor Doug? There are two things that we can draw from these particular Condemnations. The first is that it helps us to understand the facts that God sees them about ourselves and humanity. Secondly, that we may be constantly moved to give praise to God for his measureless grace that would reach such a one like me. our Father and our God. It appears that we've walked through a patch of garbage. Not that it's your word that we refer to as being garbage, no. But the description of mankind causes us to wince And causes us to smell a stench that maybe we haven't smelt in a long time. Stopping here, we have no hope. But I'm certainly glad that the Apostle Paul does not stop here. For in the weeks and months to come, we will find out that there is hope. that it is by faith in Jesus Christ whereby we have been taken from the realm of uselessness and placed into a kingdom of usefulness all for your honor and glory. And I pray, O God, that this morning we may be sitting here and have maybe canceled out these 14 characteristics of mankind, thinking that they don't apply to us. But at one time, all of them did. Because we didn't have any fear of God in our eyes. But thanks be to you, O Father, for your willingness to give us grace that appears to all men that bring us salvation. And I'm glad that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in that is our hope. Help us, O God, to have a healthy fear of the things we do and the things that we say. In order that we would honor you in all part of our lives. Without you, we can do nothing. But in you is our hope and our strength. Guide our steps this day, we ask, O oh God. Amen.